I just thought of a way you can invite folks Friday night. Uh, uh, tell them, hey, can I, you know, go to your neighbor, hey, can I give you a $40 value? $40? You're going to give me $40? Yes. Every person that comes in here, you're going to get barbecue, you're going to get drinks, you're going to get all the sides, you're going to get dancing. I mean, for the kids, there is uh, balloon tying and face painting and cornhole and games. So you can bring your whole family. Go get that anywhere else. It's $40 plus. And we had people thinking about it a year ago saying, let's, let's offer it free. Let's budget it. Let's plan it. Let's make it happen. And it's happening this Friday. And if you invite them Friday, they'll probably stay with us and come, or stay, come back on Sunday for Easter uh, service and just be a great ministry. So I encourage you to do that. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1, continuing our study of the attributes of God. I want us to think this morning about the supremacy of Christ. Uh, one of my favorite songs. Maybe, uh, Joey, you're here. Maybe we can do this Friday night uh, by Gladys Knight. Um, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, you can pull that out and I'll dance with my wife, okay? Uh, and it'll be a fun time. But it, it's that song, you probably heard it. Uh, if anyone should write my life story, for whatever reason there might be, you'd be there between each line of pain and glory because you're the best thing that ever happened to me. Great love song. The theology is terrible, okay? The theology is bad because we use absolute terminology way too carelessly. There's only one who is the best thing that ever happened. The only one who is the best or who is supreme is God. It's Christ. And we carelessly do not reserve that supremacy nearly enough for Christ. I want us to think about that this morning. Christ is the best. Christ is supreme. Ephesians 1, 19 through uh, 22 express this. It's hard to know where to start reading because you're just breaking into a long sentence that started back at verse 1 but, or verse 3, and it's, go, it's going on and on and on to the end of the chapter. So I'm going to start at verse 19 with the main parts being from 20, 21, 22. Verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might and which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Um, Christ is presented here as seated at the right hand of God, verse 20. He's far above all rule and authority. All things are in subjection to his feet. He is the one in charge. He is supreme. In our homes, if something happens and something breaks, somebody gets hurt, you run for the person in charge. Who's got 
authority to do something. We need something worked on right now. Who can do it? And then you want somebody not only who has authority, but has power. Who can actually do it? So you run to mom, or you run to dad, or you run to somebody else. The same thing in our work environment. If something goes wrong, bad, you run to the person who has the authority and the power to fix it. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fixer. Because he has ultimate authority and power. He is supreme. And if you don't get anything else out of this passage, you should, get, you should be running to Christ. Because he's supreme. He has the authority. He has the power to deal with whatever's going on in your life. He can fix it. His supremacy changes how we live. I want us to think about three aspects of it that are mentioned here. His supreme power, his supreme prominence, and his supreme position. First of all, let's think about his power. It's mentioned here as a power that is far, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and other powers and power and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, how powerful is that? How powerful is it to have all power? To have power that's far above all other power. The disciples began to witness it as Jesus walked on the way and they they watched things that he did. You remember that time he took them across the lake and they come to the other side and there's this naked man waiting on them. And they know this man to be legion because this naked man was demon-possessed. And he didn't just have a demon or some demons. Mark chapter 5 says, When the demons come out of this man, they go into a herd of about 2,000 pigs. I've never seen 2,000 pigs at one time. That's a herd. So the demons in Legion were somewhere in the 2,000 range. Think about the cooped up power demonic power that was in this man that if the the neighbors in the city would chain him up, he could just bust the chains because this demonic power that is within him. And yet when Jesus shows up, these demons start crying, don't, no, 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 don't cast us into the abyss, which is literally hell. They knew Christ had power far above what they possessed or could handle. And Christ says, get out, go to the pigs. And the, the demons come out of this man into these pigs and they go into the lake and drown. Who has power like that? One of the kids asked me a few weeks ago, can demons come in people? I said, don't worry about the demons that can come. You need Jesus because Jesus can cast them out. Don't focus on the demon power. Focus on Christ's power. It's far above all you would ever need to worry about. Just imagine walking with Christ. You see that. And there's so much more on those journeys. The time where he walked up to a tree, just withers and dies while he's talking to it. Or obviously the time he calms the sea. Or the, the time that a little girl had died, and everybody knew she was dead. 
And they ask Jesus to come. And he says, ah, she's not dead. And they laugh at him. He grabs mom and dad and closes the door, goes into her room and says to the little girl, little girl, get up. Who does that? And she gets up. Because he has power to raise the dead. And one of the greatest examples of resurrection was Lazarus. You remember that story. I mean, probably as they were wrapping up his body, I don't know what kind of, um, you know, deodorant Lazarus used. But uh, he probably already smells because that was a big deal to them. And they're wrapping up his body. They put it in a tomb. Jesus shows up four days later. Says, let's go to Lazarus' tomb. I'm going to get him up. No, 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 no. He stinketh, was the King James. He stinketh. You don't want to go there. This is going to be an unbearable. Jesus says, watch this. And he goes. I can imagine. He said, Lazarus, I know this is going to be difficult to kind of unwrap. And you know, you're all wrapped up. But come on out. And he raises Lazarus from the dead, whose body had been decaying for four days. And they already knew. Who has that kind of power? That's what we're looking at. The disciples witnessed it. A lynch mob comes up when they're in the Gethsemane to take Jesus. And he just speaks and all the soldiers fall flat back. Who can speak and put an army on the ground? Who has that kind of power? Matthew 28. Jesus describes it this way. Look at Matthew 28, the Great Commission. It's interesting to me that Jesus says... After his death, burial, and resurrection, these words. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Even in that passage, you see, he has all authority over every nation, tribe, and tongue. He has authority over the ages to be with us from this age to the age to come. But it's interesting, isn't it, not that it's not until after his death, burial, and resurrection that he basically says, I've upped my game. Because now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's given to him in a, in a declarative, visual sense. Where did he get it? Uh, turn over to Daniel chapter 7. You see it there in uh, verses um, 13 through 14. Daniel 7 talks about when Christ comes up from the grave. You remember he, he said to the, uh, the thief on the cross beside him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's Christ is out of this life that he had. He goes to paradise. Daniel 7 uh, describes that. Verse 13, Daniel in this vision says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he was coming up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be 
destroyed. That's what Jesus was talking about back in Matthew 28. He says, I died, was buried, I defeated sin, I defeated the grave, I defeated Satan. I was presented before God the Father as one whose work had been finished. And God the Father gave me now all authority, power, and dominion over every nation, over every language, over all kingdoms for now and forever. The kingdom of Christ will prevail. And I'm King of kings and Lord of lords. That's power and authority that's far above He's gone to the very throne of God to receive it and has gotten it. Um, there's no equality of power. Christ doesn't share this power with some other force. Christ and Satan, I don't know where people get this idea, are not equalities fighting. Christ is far above and beyond any power Satan ever imagined to have. Christ has all power. So what does that mean? It changes my life. Are you being chased by demons? What are you demons? You see, it doesn't matter what your demons are to me. In the sense that because whatever your demons are, Christ can cast them out. He has power and authority much greater. Are you oppressed by authorities? Is there... Someone over you, in your home, in your life, in your work. Are you oppressed by bureaucracy, by governments, by any authority? Christ is over and above. He has a name that is above every name and authority. He can deal with that. Christ is our refuge. Christ is our rock. If you're being pushed down, Christ can lift you up. If you're in darkness, Christ can bring your light. If you're in sin, he can bring forgiveness and cast it into the pits of the sea forever. If you have diseases, he can heal you from diseases. If you have rough places, he can make them smooth. If you have trouble, he can give you comfort. If there's any kind of issue with truth, God can Take away the falsehood and bring you truth. If you're poor, he can make you wealthy. If you're unsatisfied, he can make you satisfied. He can quench your thirst with life-giving water that never runs dry. He is life over death. He has power far and above and beyond all power. He is supreme. Hallelujah. Dwell more on the supremacy of Christ and run to him. He has power. Well, not only does he have power, He has prominence. Verse 22. He says, He puts all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. Now, what I mean by prominence is prominence, if something is prominent, it means it sticks out. It's, you know, like a building or a house, a house on a hill or a building in a skyline. See, That's the prominent focal point. Because that house, that building, it sticks out. Christ sticks out in prominence by one whose feet are on top of all things. Just try to catch the imagery that's being shared there. Look at Joshua 10, uh, 24, and here's an illustration that I think uh, best shows that to us. 
Let me get there. Uh, Joshua 10, verse 24. There were five kings. They went into battle against Joshua. Joshua defeats their armies. The kings get scared. They go into a cave. So they capture all five kings alive. And they tell Joshua, hey, we got all five kings. He says, bring them out. And we pick up the story, verse 24. And when they had brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua called all the men of Israel. And he said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and they put their feet on their necks. Joshua then said to them, Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. Great strategy. What, what's Joshua trying to picture there? He says, you know, you got these five kings. You were fearful when we went into battle. You were wondering, could we really pull this off? He says, now what I want to show you is take these kings and throw them down on the ground. Now, obviously, they've, they've had these kings tied up. Their hands are bound. Maybe their legs are bound, too. I don't know. And they've drugged them there, and they've cast them down. And Joshua gets all of his generals, his captains... He says, and come, you imagine a person laying there. He says, put your, put your foot right on their neck. And if you get two or three feet on your neck, I mean, that's painful. They may be screaming out. They may be squirming. You know, what can they, and Joshua's point is, when your foot is on their neck, what can they do? They're tied up. They can squirm. They can holler. They can make a fuss. They can't do anything. They, they're still alive. They still have the authority and power of a king, but they can do nothing. You can cut them off just like that. You can chop off their head if you want. You have a prominent position. You're on top. Do you not see that? That's his point. And I want you to see that as you jump into Ephesians chapter 1, verse uh, um, 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet. Christ feet is on top of all things that's a pretty significant position it's a prominent position Uh, anything can try to come I mean what are the enemies that may come against you or Christ Satan can roar Satan can put up a fuss he can roar about like a lion but he is bound and Christ's foot is on his neck and Christ has taken him out And can take him out. He's defeated. He's a defeated foe. Whatever he does, all we have to do is say, Satan, Christ has defeated you. You're a conquered foe. Satan flees from us because he knows there's power in Christ. All conflicts that we go through. You know, we go through tough times. But whatever they are, whether they are Conflicts with sin, conflict with people, conflict with uh, situations. There's no conflict that Christ cannot handle. They're just tools in Christ's hand for our sanctification. They, you know, many times we squirm. Many times we fuss and holler because things are coming against us. And we don't focus on Christ who has his foot on their necks. No need to worry. Christ has supreme power. You remember John 16, Jesus told his disciples, he says, In this world, you will face tribulation. Remember that? He says, take courage. Why does he say that? He gives the answer. In this world, you will face tribulation. But take courage. Why? Because I 
have overcome the world. Praise God. His feet is on the neck of any trouble, any situation you face. He has overcome. He's on top. He can handle it. He says, you're going to face it. But don't face it as one who doesn't have courage. Like Joshua's captains and generals, don't go into the next battle as one who doesn't have courage. We are overcomers in Christ whose feet is on top of all things. Let me show you another one. I love this one. Revelation chapter 12. Not only the prominence of Christ's feet, I want you to see the prominence of Christ's blood. Look at Revelation chapter 12. Love this passage. Revelation chapter 12. Verse 7. And, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. They were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. And the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night, and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. Because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea because of the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Knowing that he has only a short time. I love this. Don't, don't you love the phrase where it says... Um, There's no longer a place, verse 8, found for them in heaven. Love that. God says, Satan, you've been roaming around up here too long. Done. Cast Satan down. And his angel says, there's no longer a place for him to come into the presence of God. He's been cast down. He is under the feet of Christ. And Satan, who is our tempter and who is accusing us day after day after day to fall into sin, having this power of sin over us. And the Lamb of God who sits on the throne saying, that's done too. Because I have overcome their sin by the blood of the Lamb. What a joy. It says, rejoice, O heavens. My people are no longer under the bondage of sin and darkness and the grave and of Satan's power because the blood of the Lamb frees them. Think about the prominence of the blood. What do you do to get you out of sin and trouble? Sometimes we we think to get out of sin... You know, we've got to have accountability partners and we've got to have 10-step programs and we've got to have this and this and this and this. Our works are never prominent in our salvation, our justification, or our sanctification. What can take away our sin? 
You know the answer. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. It's the blood of Christ that's prominent. Because Christ has cast the evil one down at his feet. Promised back in Genesis 3.15, the foot, the heel of Christ will rest on the neck of Satan. And that's where it is. He has been exalted in all things. Satan himself is far beneath his feet. What burdens do you have Christ can't cast? What bondage do you have that he can't free? What sin have you committed that he can't forgive and separate as far as the east is from the west? What I want you to hear is you can be facing great things. You can be up against great things. But in Christ, you are never against great odds. Never. Because Christ is victorious. His position is prominent. What are the odds that Satan's going to take you out? What are the odds that sin's going to take you out with Christ on his foot on their neck? Zilch. We're up against great things, but never against great odds because of the supremacy of Christ. He's always, if he is for us, who can be against us? No one can defeat us in Christ. What do we need beyond Christ's ability to give? Nothing. You know, do you need strength? Christ can give it. His strength is measureless strength. Imperial, invincible strength is the strength of Christ. If you're weak, he can make you strong. If you're weary, he can give you comfort. If you're uh, struggling, if you're down under, if you're sick, if you're ill, Christ can do all of that for you. He can, he can heal. He can forgive. He can comfort. You know, it amazes me when I read the gospel sometimes. I, I'm just blown away about how many people respond to Christ negatively. It's like, do you not get who is in front of you? And yet it happens over and over as you read the Gospels. People are so negative. Many hated Christ. Satan obviously came to Christ at the beginning of his ministry and tempted him. Mobs came against him. Many people tried to take him out. The Pharisees tried to trap him. Didn't work. Mob tried to capture him. Didn't work. Pilate couldn't fault him. Herod couldn't kill him. Satan couldn't hold him. The death, the cross, the burial couldn't contain him. And so he rises from the grave to the right hand of God the Father because the whole heaven and earth could not contain him. He's supreme. He is over all. His feet have everything else Beneath them, supreme in his position, his power, his prominence. Think about the position he has seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Verse 20 says, And he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. 
you know uh, special seats exist. There's a head table at lots of events. And if you're seated at the right hand of the guest, or that's the, that's the guest of honor seat. It's, it's, it's the place of greatest distinction. It's the person you want to show uh, respect and honor to and exalt in, in the event you're hosting. That's the seat of honor. Who has that position? Christ. You know, um, John and James' mother thought, you know, they should have that position. Christ said, no, that's not happening. And you, you can start thinking about other people who, who might deserve a distinguished place at the head table in the family of God. I mean, I think of people like Noah, preacher of righteousness, or Abraham, the father of our faith, or Job, or Daniel, or David. I mean, when you think about those men, yet yeah, those are worthy examples to sit in a seat of honor. But Noah, we know he was overcome with wine. Abraham was overcome with fear. David, of course, committed murder and adultery. Um, Daniel, even though he was squeaky clean, they couldn't find anything. He still is constantly crying out for wisdom and insight that he didn't have. And you start thinking about the best of men. They all have some flaw. Or they all have some inadequacy. Think about Christ. And you see one with no flaws. No spots. No blemishes on his record. One who is sinless. Without fault. You think about his sufficiency. You think about someone who has no inadequacies. Look at any of us. We all have faults. We all have inadequacy. Christ has none of them. Christ is sufficient in all things. That's why God placed him at his right hand. He is the one with that seat of great distinction and honor. Do you ever feel like the Jewish priest says their work was never done? They get up every day and they go through what they have to do and they make these sacrifices. They deal with people's sins and they go to sleep and they wake up the next day and they have to do it over and over and over. It says their work was never done. Sometimes we go through life, that's the way it is for us. No matter what we do, we do it over and over and it just seems like it never, ever, ever gets done. Not so with Christ. Christ says, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to pay the ultimate sacrifice with my, the purity of my own flesh and soul. And it's going to be so pure, so right, so good, it will only need to be done once and for all. And it's done. And Christ says, done. It is finished. Don't have to do that again. Because it's perfect. It's without fault. It's adequate for every sin of every believer, both now and forever. And so God exalts Christ and sits him in the seat of greatest honor and distinction at his right hand. Um, Who do we honor? Man, it's sad that sometimes we honor movie stars, athletes. And no matter who we pick, there's so many faults. 
And there's so many inadequacies. Let us again come back and look at Jesus. No faults. No inadequacies. Perfect. Supreme. In his perfections. You know, should anyone write my life story, he'd be there between each line of pain and glory. Because Christ Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me and to you and to anyone. Supreme in his position, in his power, prominent. In his supremacy. You know, Christ only lived a brief time on earth. Not loved by many. Not praised by the religious establishment. Not respected by any political party. He was despised, disliked, disfigured, and damned. For our sin. Crucified on a cross, buried, rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death and the grave. And God exalted him far above all power and dominion and authority and seated him at his right hand and put in subjection under his feet all things. And from that position... Christ sends 66 love letters to his church, the Bible, to reveal the beauty of our head, our king, and our life together. And the church, we gather every Sunday to hear this truth proclaimed. You know, by the way, from creation, God designed the Sabbath day, one day out of seven for eternity, that we stop and we come together to honor Christ and to hear His Word proclaimed and taught to us. And He is acknowledged as we sit under His Word that He is King and He is Lord. Christ is supreme. People in every nation, tribe, and tongue listen to his truth right now on the Lord's day. People in every nation, tribe, and tongue seek to memorize his text, seek to emulate his life because he's acknowledged as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's acknowledged as directing presidents and generals and kings and queens. He's acknowledged as the refiner of art, the legislator of justice. He's the definer of truth, the one who removes all falsehood. He is strength for those who are collapsing. He's hope for the hopeless. He's the father to the fatherless. He's the husband to the widow. Christ is supreme. He is the redeemer of his people. He's the bread of life. He's the sustainer of every good and perfect thing. He's the good shepherd of God's 
flock. He is the door to heaven's household. He's the resurrection from the dead. He is the victorious conqueror over death. He is our hope, our joy, our love, our life, our redemption, our eternal glory. Hallelujah. Christ is all. Run to him. If you don't know Jesus, run to Jesus. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. Because he's supreme in power, in position, and he's prominent. He's here for us. He must increase, and I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how great you are. We love you. We adore you. We are nothing without you. Fill us, oh Lord, till we run over with your greatness and your goodness. Have mercy on us sinners that we may see you as our all in all. We praise and adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.